Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It is a Brother, Brother podcast. We are here to eulogize Christine McVie, one of our absolute favorite songwriters from one of our absolute favorite bands, and talk about what a odd career uh, both she and Fleetwood Mac had. But um, she left us this week, um, and I will be sorely missed but it you know uh we were talking about it right before we came on what an oddball band and an oddball career and something that could absolutely never be duplicated at this point yeah i think it's um it's a band of uh many lives you know a band that uh had their biggest breakthrough on their 11th album and uh a band that you know really is like i think we were joking maybe three or four bands um all wrapped into one career you know, there's the the early sort of British blues psychedelia Peter psychedelic Green. music with Pete Green and Peter Green, and then the you know kind of transition into the '70s. Um, all stuff I'm admittedly less familiar with. You know, um, well, you know, I'll give you a little bit of a rundown. Basically, uh, Fleetwood Mac um, forms in the late '60s. They are uh, Peter Green, Mick Fleetwood, John McVie. And a couple, and uh, I believe Jeremy Spencer. And um, they, can I interject, I mean, interject it, real quickly? Always named after the bassist and drummer, so it was kind of their band, I'm assuming, or was it just? Uh, kind of. Yeah. Um, Peter Green was sort of his own entity, and they kind of merged together. And that seems to be the story of of Fleetwood Mac, kind of merging with other entities. I mean, they start off in England. They're a British band. They um, Peter Green leaves after um, Mr. Wonderful and. Um, John Mc, uh, Christine McVie, who we are, who this discussion is is centered around, uh, starts off. She's a you know sort of prodigy, a musical prodigy and an artist. Um, she goes to art school. She gets out. She signs a contract. She puts out a record on her mate under her maiden name, which is uh, oddly enough Christine Perfect. Yeah, uh, that is really her name. And that was and, the name um, of the first uh, her first solo record. Correct. And then she joins up with a band called Chicken Shack. Um, and then she marries John McVie, uh, Fleetwood Mac, John McVie, noting that they are not going to, that they're not going to have compatible touring schedules and not going to be able to be together, invites her to join Fleetwood Mac as their, uh, uh, keyboard player. And she, like I said, she is a phenomenal musician, comes from a line of phenomenal musicians. Her father was a, uh, philharmonic violinist. Her grandfather was the, was an organist at Westminster Abbey. Um, so we're talking about a, you know, a, a particularly, um, strong line of, of musicians. And, uh, so she's in Fleetwood Mac. She starts contributing after, uh, being in the band a couple of, after a couple of albums of being in the band, she actually painted the cover of Kiln House, uh, their fourth record and starts contributing songs on Future Games, their fifth album. Um, after Future Games, they have another shakeup in the band and they have they hire a replacement for um, their singer um, Jeremy Spencer, and that person is a fellow by the name of Bob Welsh, who is a L.A. born and raised um, son of a screenwriter and filmmaker who did a lot of the Bob Hope Bing Crosby uh, musical films, um, and he was doing his thing going to school in. Paris 
and had a, they had a mutual friend who made the introduction. He joins the band for a couple records. They put out um, Future Games, Bear Trees, uh, and Penguin, and I believe uh, he leaves and is replaced briefly by um, another uh, singer, and they carry on. Out, sorry, during the Bob Welsh tenure, uh, the band decide to move to Los Angeles from London. So they are no longer British-based. They move to Los Angeles. Um, they're scoping out, famously scoping out places to record their next album. And uh, Mick Fleetwood and, and I believe John McVie as well are walking through Sound City Studios out in the valley. And they hear a recording of Buckingham and Nicks who were tracking their album there. Um, they love the sound of Lindsey Buckingham's guitar, and they hire him to replace uh, Bob Welsh. So that is when the um, that's when the the sort of core lineup that we all know can you know sort of convenes, and they start writing together their first album, which is the band's tenth album, uh, with that sort of you know famed lineup of uh, Christine McVie, Stevie Nicks. Lindsey Buckingham, John McVie, Mick Fleetwood, um, puts out their second self-titled album, uh, Fleetwood Mac, and that's when they really start to rise to prominence in the United States, where they become megastars uh, yeah, with the real. album Fleetwood Mac, which is contains the hits, uh, Christine McVie's hits, um, uh, Say You Love Me and, um, and uh, Over My Head. Uh, both phenomenal songs, and she's really come into and her both own. Both charted in the point. top twenty um, in the <clears throat> Correct, U.S. Too. As did Rhiannon, the Stevie Nicks contribution um, that was a holdover from before. So basically, um, you know, it it it's funny because she was never the chief songwriter in the band up until then, but suddenly she's the hit. You know, she's the one that's writing the hits. Yeah, you would and, almost say uh, like um, it was kind of like a a side accompaniment or a musician that you you just realized had you know this amazing talent i mean obviously she was talented yeah, keyboard like the player of, she was a painter it's kind of like the immersion of george harrison as a songwriter right. yeah. you know it took a little while and then when it started to take hold they were like holy shit you know these things are this guy's a hit you know a hit songwriter yeah and all having like songs, a, somebody on the bench that has time to kind of um flourish a little bit out of the limelight i i think one thing that was always cool. Like insanity. Yeah. Saying? Well, I mean, and a couple of things too. Like, yeah, insanity. Exactly. Um, just in the in the pre leading up to the new the the American lineup, I guess we'll call it right now, the mid seventies. There, you know, they were also in a lawsuit with a band called Stretch. I don't know if you if you mm-hmm. know this story, but their manager had kind of bailed on them. Went and basically it was a band apparently that was kind of a knockoff of the the more classic Fleetwood Mac sound, the the older sound called stretch so they were in a in a lawsuit that kind of kept them in limbo um as they were looking for replacements and then that's when they stumbled upon you know um lindsey famously lindsey buckingham and nicks yeah and they tried to hire lindsey buckingham as a guitar player and he said only if my girlfriend can join which seems relatively fortuitous uh in retrospect um so they're they're um you know like i said she it, it and you know i've seen in interviews and such where christine mcvee it's kind of funny her her Songs are very uh, catchy. They've, they're hooks, hooky as hell. Um, but they're also all about the same thing, basically. They're all love songs. And she's kind of famously said she never saw the point in writing 
about things when she was depressed. She only wrote things about when she was happy. Um, so, uh, or, you know, in love. And uh, so basically, if you take the entire... Or luck, we can McVie, say. Yeah, absolutely. She was a randy old broad. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and moved through a lot of relationships. You know, Fleetwood Mac, famously, uh, McVie, the McVees divorced in 76. Um, you know, they carried on... Uh, you know, she she uh, was sleeping with the lighting guy uh, on their tour and then later had a relationship with Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys. Um, but every single one of her songs is about being in love. And, and um, it's kind of uh, nice when you take her songwriting as a catalog and um, work through it because it, it does... Um, the themes are there, very familiar, and it's it. Her songs are always kind of soothing. Agreed. Um, it's 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 the kind of like, um, and, and if you think about it in, in context context of the seventies, which I know you were a child in, I was born in seventy six, but it's an era fraught with you know kind of the hangover from the sexual revolution. And really, I think the sexual revolution, in a sense, is the 70s versus the 60s, kind of started in the 60s and and then kind of, you know, became a reality in the 70s. And this is obviously somebody who was born in 76, you know, talking like a historian here. But I think her songs really encapsulate that freedom that, you know, women had kind of gained to be, you know, more sexual sexual beings and, and yeah. kind of their needs and wants. And then at the same time, like the joy of, of a new fling or new relationship she really captures in all of like a catchy pop song, like you said. And I think um, her songs always make you feel good, you know, in a weird way, like um, for topics that can be a little fraught in terms of, you know, finding a new love or sneaking around or whatever, but there's a confidence in her singing always. And, and I think that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense what you said in that interview where, you know, singing about being joyful and happy and you feel that, you know, it's like the, the sort of butterflies you get in a new relationship. She really captures over, you know, um, song. And her voice is just a voice that, um, you know, Fluid Max in this iteration, the iteration we kind of all know best, is really unique with three vocalists, all... Um, kind of in the same register, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not too far off, but they can harmonize together. And then when everybody has their opportunity in the limelight they all are, are, you know, good enough to be a lead singer of, of any group or solo artist, really. Um, and I think with her, though, in particular, they all have very, like, similar registers, but very distinctive voices. Like, you know a Christine mm-hmm. McVie song, you know a Stevie Nicks song, and you know a Buckingham song, you know? Yeah, and you could tell just by listening to the music who wrote it. Right. Um, and, yeah, hers were uh, always you know, keyboard-driven or, uh, you know, Hammond organ or, you know... Uh, it just had that kind of smooth, like jazzy piano sound, you know. That was yeah, she's pretty great. She's um, you know, if you go back and listen to the early stuff, I went back and listened to um, you know, Kiln House and Future Games earlier today, Bare Trees. Um, she, you can really, uh, you know, you you can really hear her playing because she wasn't yet uh, so much of a singer. She was more of a backup singer. Um, but her playing is really, you know, on the blues, when they were an early blues band, is really pretty incredible. Um, she could play kind of any kind of style. And, you know, as they got into the 80s and, um, you know, the uh, cocaine was flowing around, um, you know, she, she wrote most of the hits um, in their, you know, sort of late 
era surge, um, you know, off Mirage and Tango in the Night, Hold Me, uh, famously. And then, you know, the song that's on every advertisement on every, um, you know, every uh, five seconds on if you're watching sports at the moment, but everywhere off Tango in the Night, um, which was just a massive hit and is a massive hit again. Um, as Dreams was a couple years ago, uh, was a massive hit in 76, and it was a massive hit in 2021. Um, it's wild how these, how much staying power these songs have. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, what's cool is, you, I think when you think of Fleetwood Mac, you know, Stevie Nicks was just obviously a, a huge, beautiful, young... Force. Yeah, and, and had her own kind of charisma. Also didn't play anything, was out in front. Buckingham certainly seemed like a bit of a ringleader or, or taskmaster to some degree, you know. And the other three who they were sort of original members, you know, at that point, all were kind of background in a weird way, um, even though uh, McVie had arguably the most hits and there would be no Fleetwood Mac without her hits. I mean, they, you know, there was obviously going to be hits off those albums because they're great albums in, in the Buckingham and, and Nick stuff, and Nick's especially are going to have hits, but I mean, she really rounded it out and was so important, but I always felt like, and maybe I'm wrong, you know, I wasn't, wasn't, uh, as aware during No, it doesn't era. feel like she was in this, she wasn't a front person. She didn't so seem like speak. she wanted yeah. it ever either. You know, I mean, it seemed mm-hmm. like she kind of knew that she could just kind of sit back. It, it, it reminds me a little bit, and I'm, I'm not a fan of this band, but like, um, is it, uh, Krieger, the guitar player of the doors? Yeah. Who yeah, wrote all the hits. He wrote like, yeah, every, every fucking radio hit was him. And another guy, I mean, he didn't sing, so that's a big difference. But like, um, but you know, who could just kind of be like, okay, let's pop out the the three minute pop yeah, when song. When you think here. the Doors, you think of Jim Morrison and possibly Ray Manzarek. But right. Robbie Krieger wrote, you know, "Love Me Two Times," "Light My uh, Fire," you know, "Light My Fire," and um, you know, uh, every other radio uh, single they had. Yeah. So you know, and that's kind of. It, but it's also you know, you kind of get this sort of sly feeling from Christine McVie that. You know, she just and I have no evidence to back this up, but she was just like, "Oh yeah, I have a new one too." You know, it's like yeah, no, there, um, I feel like there was had to have been a you know this band was just such the epitome of that period in terms of um, you know relationships gone bad, uh, drug overdoing, you know, Tusk being you know the biggest studio yeah. mess ever. Um, and you know somebody that i feel like again no this is totally wish casting or whatever you call it these days but just somebody kind of i felt like was like in the room observing and just like okay guys uh let's play something real here you know yeah <laughs> no, I, I mean i always felt like with with uh lindsey buckingham's um i mean he great player you know a uh, good songwriter really good looking guy but, you know, huge ego. I yeah. always felt like he was at war with Stevie Nicks. And somewhere, you know, as all that... You like know, he was pissed uh, his girlfriend was more famous than him always or something, you know? Always. You know, I made you. Yeah. And, um, you know, then there's Christine McVie just pounding out hits in the back in the background. Yeah, You know, also, you know, while they were so, you know, uh, volcanic, uh, Buckingham and Nicks, I mean, she managed to get divorced relatively quietly in 76 and stay in a band with her ex-husband for the rest of her life basically yeah you felt like it was um the sort of ideal situation in terms of like people that this isn't working but you know we get along and you know because nick's then famously you know was with was she with uh 
Nick Fleetwood, or was she with uh, McVeigh at well, the end? Uh, she was. She had a fling with McFleetwood. She was living with Jimmy Iovine for a while. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah, all over. The, so I mean, uh, you kind of had CSI this... Stevie Nicks, but um, no, not at all. But it, I mean, and it's it's all fine. But it was just one of those things that. Like you said, like in there, that was what would be sort of tabloid information, you know, or you know, oh my God, yeah. Britney Spears esque, you know, kind of. Um, it was, it was essentially yeah. tabloid situation. I mean, it, it, you know, if there would been, you know, if the press had been different, certainly, but it was not the world's best kept secret that, uh, and also they all they did was write songs about each other, right. um, you know, Which, she's and not nice. He's writing always. songs about the lighting guy. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and those guys, those two are writing hate mail to each other. Um, yeah. it's kind of funny. Well, I mean, you look at Tusk, which is, you know, I think kind of sums up Lindsey Buckingham on his own not on his own, but giving him the reins, um, and mm-hmm. Tusk, which I think we both like and has its moments. The three songs that came out of that, the song Tusk, Sarah and Think About Me are her songs, you know? And, um, and you know, Sarah's a Stevie Nicks song. But Sarah, yeah. Sarah Stevie Nicks, sorry. Um, but then, but think about me if you if you think about Fleetwood Mac in that era and that sound, mm-hmm. like think about me is the song, right? Like that is mm-hmm. the, that is the Fleetwood Mac song. It's such a fucking great song, you know. Like yeah, on yeah, our on our playlist, another <laughs> another hundred mile an hour fastball. Yeah, you know, from Christine McVie. Um, all right, you want to take a quick break and listen to. Um, I mean, over my head. I just gotta listen. Let's take a quick break and listen over my head. Sounds good. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, we are talking um, and hopefully uh, suitably eulogizing Christine McVie, one of our favorite songwriters of all time. And, um, you know, the sort of heart and soul, I think, of Fleetwood Mac. And um, But uh, as we say goodbye to um, Christine she McVie... The, she was the steady gonna, Eddie of the band. Yeah, I think we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about a... Uh, a new documentary that's that's now playing on Showtime, um, predicated or based on one of our favorite books, uh, "Meet Me in the Bathroom." And uh, Jerry, you watched this the other day. Christian watched it. I watched it, and I think there's a consensus here. Um, not a very good documentary. They they managed to take what was something we were, uh, you know, breathlessly awaiting, and turn it into. A, really dull um 
traipse through uh, New York in the early 2000s. Yeah, it's weird. You know, uh, Lizzie Goodman's book, which is an oral history of that period, and I think, you know, a period that we were well aware of. Um, you were in New York on and off that time? or were you, uh, I had just left New York. You had just left and, New York, yeah. And, um, you know, Christian was, I think, he was 12. Yeah, he was going to be younger. I was in Austin, but I did a couple of stints in New York, um, like 99, 2000. So right around the beginning of that. Um, but I, I was doing... probably was as well-informed and seeing more shows after I moved to Boston than I was in New York because... Um... Well, this scene brought back the scene. That's what I was going to say, you know. Well, it's also just... Yeah, and so I wound up seeing The Strokes in Providence, Rhode Island before their album came out. I wound up, um, you know, seeing all of those bands on their first tours. I still had the youthful energy to get out and, and go see things that I had read about and never heard. Yep. Um, and so it was pretty, it was pretty alarming that yeah, so many good bands still were coming out of energy. But, um... particularly because, Particularly because, you know, when I lived in New York, I think it was kind of a dry spell for New York bands. I mean, there were, it was either, I don't know whether it was too expensive or, or whatever, but the, the 90s really didn't produce a ton. I mean, you know, you had your helmets and your Sonic Youths, um, but all that felt, you know, relatively established um, and a holdover from the 80s. And, and it felt like a lot, you know, like the most important music was coming out of other regional scenes, including, you know, my where I went to college in Amherst, Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, it just didn't feel like New York was the epicenter. I mean, it was certainly the epicenter of hip hop um, and uh, a lot of other, you know, phenomenal um, emerging music and genres. But it wasn't an indie rock stalwart in the in the mid 90s. I felt like everybody was touring from somewhere else. Yeah, no, absolutely. It kind of disappeared and dried up. And I was going to say hip hop was had really taken over New York and hip hop at that point had really gone mainstream into the, you know, kind of to become or on, well on its way of becoming the dominant music form or popular music yeah. form. Um, but these were kind of the, the biggie days and, and Tupac wars and, and things like Early that. Jay-Z. Yep. Yeah. And so... I agree, and you had this kind of. It's funny because these bands are were all you know younger than than me, but um, are you know right around probably a couple of years or, or give or take, and you know they were really influenced by bands that I was digging a lot at the time, like Guided by Voices, and um, even bands like Spoon and stuff who had been pavement, you know kind of yeah. out there. Pavement, yep, and uh, you know the Strokes famously were sort of like we just wanted to sound like Guided by Voices, but we ended up sounding like um, you know television if television was guided by voices but um you know it was an aesthetic it was a style it was kind of this rebirth of rock and, and i think just a really exciting creative time and I, I think new york real estate back then was much cheaper over especially over in brooklyn and you know and even lower manhattan at that time so you had this kind of ripe yeah, area lower East side was you know a place where you had you feared to tread a few years earlier was starting yeah. to get developed and gentrified and and, um, you know, my friends, uh, you know, my friends who are artists were still living in Williamsburg in very affordable apartments. I mean, and there wasn't much Charlie over there. Lived, well, my friend Charlie lived above uh, Union Pool. And, right. you know, it was I, I think it had a hot plate, but I think he paid, you know, well under a thousand dollars a month to live there. Yeah. Um, and so it was, you know, it was a different place. And 
Um, but you know, these, these bands were emerging out of, uh, um, you know, the Lower East Side, that's where the Conclave was. And it all just seemed to, you know, kind of hit at the same time. I mean, the Strokes, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, uh, TV on the radio, um, LCD sound system, uh, even, you know, some of the other uh, musicians, you know, mentioned in, or sort of cited in, in Meet Me in the Bathroom. I mean, you know, the White Stripes get kind of thrown in. Oh, um, definitely. Yeah, the Killers get thrown even in. Even despite the fact that they weren't New York. No. Um, uh, killers, Vegas, um, and uh, you know even Ryan Adams, who comes off as the villain of the book, um, and an unnecessary uh, piece of the documentary as well. But um, yeah, but yeah, the I mean I think what so the documentary is directed by Dylan Southern and, and Will Loveless, who also made um, LCD Sound Systems famous, yeah, concert, which was actually really good. Um, but I think the thing but that really a, bummed me out about the the film was you know. The book had sort of a a debaucherous young uh, energy to it, where you know Jonathan Fireeater and and you know was kind of one of the first key uh, bands that they focus on and moved around and yeah there was bands like Moldy Peaches and stuff like that. This the movie really just kind of focuses on Moldy Peaches, Strokes, a little bit of TV, the radio, a little bit LCD, uh, but I would say yeah yeah yeah, Strokes, um, Interpol, and and Moldy Peaches get a lot of the the feature here. Um, and what it ends up available. missing is just kind of that the fun of it all, you know, it, it, it sort of, I don't know, like somehow they just took the energy that was out of that scene, sucked it out of the movie that was seemed to be in that scene. You know, I think it's great. Well, I think, to, I, go ahead. I think one of the weird things is, and, 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 you know, it's a, it's a measure of, of what is um, kind of seen as, as, you know, gauche to speak about now and and you know unpopular to think about but basically these were rich kids having fun yeah. and you know lo- nobody wants to admit that anymore but every single one of these guys with you know i mean with maybe uh, you know a couple of exceptions we're all private school college educated kids whose parents were you know fancy new york types um you know and it's you know there's a there's a pleasure in i mean there's an excitement and a pleasure in the in the fact that these guys were young and handsome and cool and parting their brains out and doing dumb shit but now you know there's a a feeling that that shouldn't be addressed or it should be apologized for or whatever and that's what this documentary feels like it feels like nobody wants to you know talk about the elephant in the room which is that you know, Julian Casablancas's dad owned Elite Model, uh, and you know all these guys were. I mean, the, the two main guys in the Strokes met at boarding school in Switzerland for crazy. Yeah, and it. it I mean, it mentions some of that, and it, it talks about some of the backlash. And and I will say too, you know, there was. This was still a time where rock criticism was big, and um, mm-hmm. and I think you know the Strokes, like you, I didn't see them early on, but I had this the actual vinyl, you know, uh, EP of or single of um, seven inch that had modern age and, and uh, tonight on it, you know, um, well, yeah, like probably eight months before I ever heard the album. And, yep. you know, and I think I the first copy of the album I got was actually the UK version with the album cover. Cause they like had had it in my local, you know, indie record well, cause store. Cause they had to pull the album. To yeah. Take off <laughs> because New York, York city, city cops. cops. Right. And after nine 11, and this is, you know, obviously pre nine 11, which should change everything. But like, um, 
or some of it is pretty yeah i think you're right i think there's like there's there's so much they almost lean into like the the 2022 version of this which is like uh, i suffered some depression and i you know was um objectified and you know things like that which are all valid and all true and, and you need to hear both sides it's like the you know behind the music but they missed the first part right like it, it's sort of the second but, half of behind the music where everyone's strung out and depressed and their careers haven't yeah, necessarily gone where they want them to go or, or you know they're tired you know yeah but i think it all you know it's all told in that sort of retrospective manner none of it you get you get not yeah you know, i mean like you just said you get the it's the second half after the second you know, after the third commercial break of behind the music, um, it's it's basically like the come down, and that wasn't what the vibe of that scene was at all. It was exciting and it was fun, and um, you know, if somebody says you had to be there, then show us what it was like to be there, not what it Absolutely. was. Absolutely, you know, not what we already can do, which is think about what it might have been like to be there. Well, and I think one thing too that you know, and I was saying the critics, I think this, these were bands that were like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing since fucking, let you know, since, since CBGBs, yeah, in the since 70s. television, since you know, uh, Johnny Thunders, whatever, Ramones. But then there was that sort of like inevitable backlash when the Strokes put out like their second album, or you know, or when, um, you know, yeah, 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 and then you know, and, and they had that kind of boomerang effect where it's like, oh, these guys are now mimicking, you know. Patty Smith, or you know, this is nothing yeah. new, right? Anymore, and um, and I think that is hard, and I don't think that is as um, relevant today because rock criticism just isn't as relevant today as it probably was back then, and it didn't matter as much. Well, it didn't but, shape opinion nearly as much, yeah. Yeah, but again, like, opinion. and I, I don't know if you if you watch the whole thing or not, um, but um, you know, they do go into kind of the heroin and addiction of of, of Albert Hammond, and and you know, sort of the. I guess blaming that a bit on, on Ryan Adams and stuff like that. And, but it, it just was presented in a way that doesn't even really, I, I don't know. I, I can't describe it except for, but like, how could you, they just made it it's more too far boring a than it needed to be. Yeah. Or it, it seemed almost out of place. Like, let's just focus on this one thing or like, or almost like you, you, you know, you thought this was fun, but really this was going on, you know? And it's like, nah, I thought it was fun because it was fun and we were there. Well, I did. I mean, <laughs> and, if you recall, the book really kicks off with Jonathan Fire Eater. Right. Another. Uh, Who's you know, not at all school, mentioned in the movie. Another school band from D.C. Yep. Um, and, you know, that was that was interesting. I liked Jonathan Fire Eater and it led me into this, you know, finding out about what was going on in this scene. But, um, you know, and his death was traumatic or his, you know. He didn't Not die death, until yeah. a number of years later, but um, you know he spun out and um, you know became uh, you know really a um, troubled character for the you know remainder of his life. Um, and his band um, recruited a I believe a cousin of one of the members and and became the Walkmen. But the Walkmen were a big part of this too. Yep. Yeah, that's what I mean. There was like, there's just so much going on. And I get it if, you know, they could only get certain bands to talk. And, and certainly LCD is, is a good part of this, but nothing that you don't know about them or kind of realize. I mean, I think one of the only interesting things to come out of it, and, and this is definitely a negative review, so we were not fans of the doc. Love the book. Good job, Lizzie. Um, you know, was how... And I don't know if this happens as much today either, just with the cross pollination of music is so broad in terms of styles. But, 
you know, and, and I think James Murphy is the epitome of this, especially because of his age, but how scene oriented it was. It's like, you know, we were the downtown guys who like dance music and they were the, the art school kids were over in Brooklyn TV on the radio and yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, you know, the rich kids well, the, from they, 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 the strokes and, you know, it's just kind of funny how even internally there was some of that. And that, that comes across in the book as well. But, but again, like, it was a time New York City had really it was the reemergence of New York City as being one of the most uh, fun and livable young cities yeah, yeah in, in the world. And um, this made it look, uh, you know, they definitely show some highlights for sure, but but also um, kind of a bit of a drag, I would say. And, and you know, I, I'm going to just knock Interpol for a second, too. I really love that first record. I think we all do. I think even today they put out stuff that is not as solid, but it's not bad. It's good stuff. You know, they, they, they're a good band. But, man, really boring cast of characters, Paul Banks and the crew. <laughs> and the movie, you know, really just didn't quite understand, like, who your personalities were in this, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's uh, you know. Have James we'll Murphy do the whole fucking narration if you want. He's great, you know? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we can end on this note, but I do think it is metaphorically accidentally kind of uh sound in the sense that um they made a movie that is so concerned with being cool that it's not enjoyable and right. that may have been you know kind of the the pot you know the the posture of that whole scene you know everybody was so concerned with the coolness factor that maybe it wasn't as much fun for them but you know this is the this is the filmic version of of um you know being so concerned with being cool that you actually are boring as shit yeah, and arguably the bands they focus on most, Moldy Peaches, Interpol, Strokes, and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, all could only be cool once. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I love those bands, and I love multiple albums by the Strokes, and um, I'm not a huge Moldy Peaches fan, but but I, I think the Strokes' other stuff is pretty underrated, actually. But, but in essence, like, if you were to take a survey, right, people love that one record, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an all-timer. Anyway, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll end this thing how we end them all. Sounds good. to the brother 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 pod and today when and i are uh had a great discussion on uh fleetwood mac christine mcvee and rest in peace and um and then talked a little bit about our uh, disappointment in the meet me in the bathroom doc which we were um even willing to go to the theater to see um luckily i did not i st- stayed on the couch and watched it on showtime but um you know off the excellent book by lizzie uh, goodman um on the you know early 2000s scene in new york city but uh, we're going to make this a pretty short pod because we're you know, putting our list together and gearing up for our final, uh, which we'll have all three of us on for the best albums of the year, the 21 or 22, whatever we figure out our count is. But in the meantime, when I'm going to ask you the, uh, the question I always ask, or we always ask, what are you listening to? 
Well, I am watching both White Lotus and uh, Fleischman is in Trouble. Um, White Lotus continues to be excellent, and Fleischman is in Trouble is um, something I, you know, was very excited about having read the book and having, uh, you know, made you guys read the book, but was a little dubious about whether or not it would translate well to the screen, and it does, and they have a great cast, and it is uh, well worth watching. It's um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Goodman, I mean, sorry, <laughs> uh, Lizzie Kaplan, uh, and uh, I think it's I think it's excellent, and other than that, I just finished up a book um, re- recommended to me by my old friend Ellen Ferry called uh, Free Love by Tessa Hadley, which is a nice little slice of life, um, London in the late 60s, um, the same place that my parents lived when I was uh, soon to be born. And uh, then I'll give another plug to uh, The Lemon by S.E. Boyd, which of course is not a real person. It is Joe Cohane, uh, Kevin Alexander, and Alessandra Lissardi. Um, and a very funny book that they are on book tour for right now. Um, so keep your eyes peeled, New York and other places, uh, for more readings and book signings for those guys. But, um, uh, Joe, what are you listening to? Yeah, well, you you nailed like pretty much all of the things I was going to talk about. So we're, the pop, we're in the same, that you... same universe. Um, I'll just also kind of just I'll talk a little bit about White Lotus, I guess, and um, just how much I love this show. I love season one. The new season is really, um, you just have to take it as a different story and a different slice of life. Um, season one, to me, is one of the best seasons of television, and season two is uh, right up there. It's, you know, um, it's, it's going to be, you know, Surfer Rosa and Doolittle in terms of um, shows. Nice. I really think there's nothing like it on TV. I love Fleischman too. It's a, a great book as well. And I was going to mention the lemon too. And I know you're uh, hoping to have Joe on, on the pod for an interview. So I'd, I'd say go buy that book. It's a great, I think that's a great Christmas gift book too. Cause it's, it's funny. It's, um, it's really well-written and just, uh, a, a modern kind of satire and, and really funny. So I, I, I would say if you haven't, if you're looking for books to get people, you can't go wrong with the lemon. Um, I'm enjoying it and I enjoyed the reading they did in, in Cambridge that you hosted. It was fun. So, um, I don't have anything new to add, unfortunately, but, um, I will, uh, put a song on the, on the list, but I'll let you go first. Ah, uh, damn. I was going <laughs> to, I was hoping that you were going to. I can go. I've got them. I mean, so. Go. All right. So in honor of, uh, McVeigh, I am going to go with, um, I'm going to go with Over My Head. And uh, I know we played it on the break there, um, but it's just one of the best songs ever. And uh, and I'm also gonna I'm gonna do three actually today because um, I kind of want to put you make love and fun on there too. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I've been listening to uh, bands playing on the Ringers Radiohead, which is kind of interesting. It's a little it takes a little bit of a more musical approach, and and they talk a little bit about what kind of makes Radiohead sound so accessible, but at the same time fucking weird and complicated. And uh, a song, I don't know if you and Christian love the song as much as I do, but off Kid A, Idiotech, I'm going to put on as well. Great. Wow. Well, I guess that makes me want to put a couple on at least. I'm going to throw on... um, We haven't been able to record as much, so go for it. In honor of of Christine McVie, but not a Christine McVie song, I will throw on uh, 
Sarah by Fleetwood Mac. Nice. And uh, I'm going to put on Someday, Some Way by Marshall Crenshaw. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, is that not on there? Well, wow, that's cool. Definitely do it. All right. Well, All right. good talking to you, and uh, enjoy your second viewing and meet me in the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> will do, and I uh, look forward to the end of the year pod on, on Albums of the Year. Almost there. Great. Talk soon. Bye. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.